Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Well, spring has officially sprung, and things are changing rapidly. And we're not just talking about the weather. Washington, D.C. has been throwing curveballs left and right at us. Yeah, and benefit professionals probably feel like they're striking out. Ah, baseball references. Thank you very much. Yes, opening day is upon us. I had a great time at Brewer's opening day despite the outcome. That being said, we got to get into it. We've got a bunch of updates since our last episode. Do you think you can get it all done in under two minutes like you did last time? I believe I came close last month. Uh, I might actually be able to do this in 90 seconds. So if you could please time me. All right. First, we have some nominations to recap. Uh, Alexander Acosta's nomination as Labor Secretary was approved by the Senate Health Committee on March 30th. And that is the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. His nomination advances to the full Senate, and no date has been set for that vote. Moving on to the Supreme Court Justice nomination, Justice Neil Gorsuch was confirmed by a 54 to 45 vote. Uh, Senate Republicans used the nuclear option to allow them to change the rules so that they'd only need a simple majority vote rather than the customary 60 votes. Moving on to paid sick leave, last month we discussed the paid sick leave laws that are currently active in 39 jurisdictions, including seven states, which are Connecticut, California, Massachusetts, Oregon, Vermont, Arizona, and Washington. Well, on April 5th, both houses of the Maryland legislature passed a paid sick leave bill with enough support to override a promised veto by their governor. So it looks like we will have state number eight in Maryland. And following up with MEPRA, the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act, one application was withdrawn with indications it'll be refiled. That was New York State Teamsters. One application was refiled, the United Furniture Workers Pension Fund A. An additional four were filed since the last episode including Alaska Iron Workers Pension Plan in Anchorage, the International Association of Machinists Motor City Pension Fund in Troy, Michigan, Local 805 IBT Teamsters Pension and Retirement Plan in New York, New York, and Western Office and Professional Employees Pension Fund in Portland, Oregon. In total, there are six applications in review. And finally, an updated on the fiduciary rule. On April 4th, the Department of Labor issued final regulations confirming that the applicability date of that fiduciary rule will be delayed by 60 days, which is June 9th. Just a reminder that this was the rule that required that investment advisors must act in the best interests of their clients. Wow, that was a lot of stuff to cram into that update. Did I make it? or I think you did. Okay. If all of these rapid-fire changes have your head spinning, check out the International Foundation's new Benefits Transition Tracker. We keep track of everything Washington, D.C. does that impacts benefits, and we've put it in one easy-to-find place. And if you're a member, put May 4th on your calendar. We've got a great new webcast on the books to look back at President Trump's first 100 days in office. 
So in last month's episode, we spent a lot of time discussing the AHCA, the American Health Care Act. Kelly, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you probably have some updates for us on that. Well, that's certainly true, Justin. When we did talk last time, the House Republicans had just released a multifaceted bill called the American Health Care Act, or AHCA, to repeal and replace ACA. The bill got a lot of traction. It was approved by relevant House committees and seemed to be heading to passage. But at the last minute, the bill was withdrawn because the sponsors realized they didn't have enough votes to pass it. Yeah, that was all very dramatic. So what were the stumbling blocks, Kelly? What this withdrawal brought to light is that there are differing opinions among GOP members about how they think ACA should be repealed and replaced. Some conservative Republicans thought the AHCA was too much like ACA and are adamant that ACA be fully repealed. Some moderate Republicans were uncomfortable with the Congressional Budget Office estimates of how many people would become uninsured by the AHCA, so they thought the bill went too far. The Democrats appear to be united in their view that ACA should stay but be improved. So it seems like we're at a standstill on this again. Uh, What do you think is going to happen next? Well, that's a good question. At first, President Trump and House Leader Paul Ryan said they were going to move on to tackle tax reform and put health care reform to the side. But since then, there have been a number of meetings between the different GOP groups discussing a variety of possible amendments to the AHCA to bring about consensus. A few of the ideas that they've been discussing include uh, allowing states to opt out of the requirement to offer minimum essential health benefits, and permitting states to not require insurers to use community rating. In other words, insurers could then set premiums that vary based on a person's health status, claims history, or gender. And that's the way it was before ACA, right? Exactly. Another possible amendment is to create a kind of invisible high-risk pool that would reimburse insurers for patients with costly pre-existing conditions. Okay, um, well, now how does an invisible high-risk pool differ from a traditional high-risk pool? In a traditional high-risk pool, individuals with high-cost health conditions who don't qualify for health insurance in the individual market are covered by a separate publicly funded option. However, an invisible high-risk pool keeps those people with high-cost conditions in private market plans, and insurers covering them are reimbursed by the high-risk pool when an insured person's health costs are higher than a certain threshold. So, Kelly, I'm going to address the elephant in the room. Will there be a new health care reform law soon? Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I certainly don't know. Congress is on Easter break for a couple of weeks, so there probably won't be much progress until late April. The bottom line for employers and health plan sponsors is that ACA is still the law and they should comply with the law. So does this wrap up our discussion about the Affordable Care Act? Well, before we move on, I'd like to mention some important dates coming up related to the health insurance exchanges. Just a reminder, those exchanges, also known as marketplaces, were created by ACA and set up in each state to give people access to health insurance if they don't have health coverage from their employers or a government plan. 
I'm sure most of our listeners have heard in the news there's concern about many of the exchanges because more and more insurers are choosing to discontinue offering insurance through these exchanges. And fewer insurers means less competition, which means higher prices, right? That's right, Julie. Now, to get to the first important date, to participate in the federally facilitated exchanges in 2018, insurance companies have to file their applications and rate tables by June 21, 2017. So, if the government has not passed reform legislation by then and does not make it clear it will financially support the 2018 exchanges soon, more insurance companies will elect not to participate in the exchanges. Well, and that would certainly, certainly threaten uh, the stability of the exchanges. Yes, it would, and that's not all. The other threat to insurer participation in the exchanges is a lawsuit that was filed in 2014 in which the U.S. House of Representatives said the Obama administration had overstepped its authority by spending funds to reimburse insurance companies for cost-sharing subsidies that Congress did not appropriate. Okay, so you're talking about the House v. Burwell case uh, that was filed, as you said, in 2014. Now, originally the court ruled in favor of the House, but the Obama administration appealed it. And now when President Trump came into um, the administration, the name of that case did change to House v. Price, the Price being our new Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price. So uh, right now, the appeal hadn't been ruled on when the um, Trump administration began. So the Trump administration asked the court to delay its ruling on the appeal because it thought Congress would very quickly pass a bill to repeal and replace ACA, and therefore the lawsuit would be irrelevant. That's right, Julie. So now we get to an important date again. Specifically, the current administration said it would submit status reports on its legislative progress to the court every three months, starting on May 22nd. So if the current administration abandons the appeal, insurance companies would lose those reimbursements and would be even less likely to want to offer insurance through the exchanges. Now, I've been hearing that both President Trump and um, Speaker Ryan said that they're thinking they'll continue making these reimbursements to the insurance companies while the lawsuit is still pending. True. But if their attempt to repeal and replace ACA takes longer than expected, who knows? So, Kelly, are you saying that they struck out with that attempt? Ah, oh. So it seems like there's still a lot to talk about with health care reform, and I'm sure that our listeners have tons of questions. The Foundation has a great conference coming up that can answer a lot of these. Check out the Healthcare Management Conference coming up May 1st through the 4th in New Orleans. Get more information and register today at ifebp.org slash healthcare. Well, if it's the end of an inning, does that mean it's time for a treat? I think so. Uh, I think I'd like to go get a brat. A brat? No, no, not a brat. Julie, how how is it that you were born and raised in Milwaukee and you don't like bratwurst? I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't either because I am definitely a Milwaukee girl, but I, I don't want a brat. I would take some Cracker Jack. All right, I agree. You both deserve snacks, but if we could wait till the next inning, please, I'd like to move along. You have to deal with us. Moving on to the retirement side, (laughs) we've seen a new emerging trend, and that is retirement plans for private sector workers that are sponsored by states. 
Julie, can you explain some of the elements of these programs? Yeah, I'm happy to, Justin. Thanks. Um, well, seeing the need, some states have explored the idea of setting up a state-sponsored and run program as a retirement savings vehicle that would be made available to private sector employers and workers. For businesses that don't offer a retirement savings plan to their workers, these types of programs would be a way to make it easier for them to offer something. And therefore, the business owners wouldn't have administrative or fiduciary responsibilities if they used this approach. These programs would use state efficiencies to provide a pooled program. So there are a couple of options that states have used so far. The first is uh, what's being called a secure choice or an automatic IRA type program. All private sector businesses within the state that don't offer a retirement savings plan would enroll in this program and then the workers who work for these businesses would in turn be automatically enrolled in the IRA program and there'd be a default percent of their pay automatically taken out of their paycheck and contributed to the IRA unless the worker decides to opt out of the program. So Julie, if I were in one of these plans, uh, it'd be automatically withdrawn from my paycheck and it'd be deposited into an account before I even see it. That's correct. The money would go out before you even have your hands on it. So it's a way to encourage people to save. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been six states that have um, voted in and implemented or are in the process of implementing this type of program. And that's California, Illinois, Connecticut, Oregon, Massachusetts, and Maryland. Okay, Julie, so do employers in these states have to participate if they don't offer another type of retirement plan, or is it voluntary? Well, it really depends on the state, Kelly. Uh, most have some sort of mandates in place. Uh, for example, Connecticut and uh, California require ma mandatory participation for employers that have five or more employees and that don't offer a retirement plan already. Illinois requires employers without any other plan to participate if they have 25 or more employees, but employers in the state that have fewer than 25 employees can participate if they want to. I would like to note that in all of these states, there is no requirement that the employer has to make any kind of employer contribution to the plan on behalf of their employees. They can make contributions if they want to, but they don't have to. They just need to make a payroll deduction from paychecks for their employees to put the money into the plans. So basically, they're simply giving workers access to a retirement savings vehicle. Right. Another option that a couple of states have used is establishing a retirement marketplace to make it easier for small businesses to find retirement plans for their employees. Uh, this approach makes use of like a web-based platform to connect small businesses with retirement providers, sort of like ACA has done with their insurance marketplace. Uh, the two states that have done this so far are New Jersey and Washington State. Julie, are there other areas that are exploring this concept of a retirement program? There are. There have been. There's been several states that either have commissions that are looking into it or have considered bills in their legislatures. Uh, right now, Minnesota and Colorado, for example, are exploring this. And there are three cities that are looking at this idea as well. Uh, Seattle, Philadelphia, and New York City. Well, don't these types of plans get sticky when you're talking about ERISA? 
has the DOL weighed in on that? The DOL has, because you're right. That's one of the considerations that states and cities that have been looking at implementing this type of program, they've been concerned that any kind of plan they put together might fall under ERISA, which would mean there would be some ERISA compliance requirements that would fall on either the employers or on the states that have put these programs in place. So last year in August, the Department of Labor issued a final rule on state payroll deduction savings programs that had automatic enrollment. And the guidance was used on uh, issued to assure states that these plans could be designed and operated without being ERISA plans so they wouldn't have ERISA compliance uh, issues. And then in December, a similar rule was released by the Department of Labor expanding this type of program to state political subdivisions like cities and counties. Wait, didn't I just read something about this last week? Yeah, there have been some updates in that area. Um, in February, there were two House resolutions that were introduced to, quote, disapprove, unquote, of these rules and make it so that these rules would have no force or effect. There was one resolution for the state rule and one resolution for the political jurisdiction or subdivision rule. Both resolutions were passed by the House in February, and on March 30th, the resolution that dealt with the state political subdivision, like the cities and the counties, that was passed by the Senate and has been sent on to the president. And this is kind of interesting example of what is known as the Congressional Review Act. This particular act says that a rule can be reviewed and overruled or repealed by Congress if it's within 60 legislative days of being released. Julie, what about that other resolution that you had mentioned? The second one that relates to states, mm -hmm. uh, that one hasn't yet been taken up by the Senate. Reportedly, that one may not have as much uh, support as the first one that was approved. Um, we can only speculate as to why. It might be because some states already have voted such a program into place. And also because that first rule, which came out last August, is passed the 60 legislative day review period. So why are those rules being disapproved? That's a very good question, Justin. Uh, those who are opposed to these particular rules argue that encouraging the use of IRAs will mean that individuals who are in IRAs won't have ERISA protections. And there's also some concern that if there's a patchwork of laws between states and cities, that'll make it hard for multi-state employers. So going with our baseball theme, we've officially hit the seventh inning stretch. If we were out in Miller Park right now, we'd be standing up, stretching, and singing Roll Out the Barrel. Hey, that sounds like fun. But we still have one more really important topic to discuss. Agreed. Uh, there's one hot topic that's receiving a lot of attention in the benefits community, and that is opioid abuse. I know we've certainly received questions from our members on that topic. And we have been doing some focus group work with our members about mental health and substance abuse issues. And actually last week we uh, had a meeting with our industry leaders. And it's a really, really huge issue that has a huge impact on the workplace. So because of that, uh, the foundation has dedicated extensive resources to this issue, including blogs, articles, webcasts, and a survey report that addresses trends in workplace mental health. 
according to that report, organizations are becoming increasingly aware of the prevalence of opioid abuse and they're starting to take action. About one in three organizations state that prescription drug addiction is prevalent in their organization. Similarly, two in three responding organizations have cited an increased prevalence in mental health and substance abuse challenges compared to just five years ago. Well, that's disturbing to hear. But the bigger question is, what can plan sponsors and employers do about this? Yeah, Kelly, that was recently addressed in an article in the Foundation's Benefits magazine. Uh, That article listed eight ways that benefit plan sponsors can make a difference. Uh, And that includes, one, using data analytics to identify and manage fraudulent use. Two, requiring prior authorization for opioid prescriptions. Three, monitoring hospital discharges and conducting patient oversights to look for prior drug abuse offense. Four, developing planned strategies to cover abuse deterrent opioids. Number five, working with the pharmacy benefits manager to establish a fraud tip hotline. Number six, offering alternative treatment options for pain management. Number seven, training and educating prescribing physicians. And number eight, communicating and educating participants about the addictive aspects of opioids. I would just like to mention that when we did that survey that Justin mentioned on mental health and substance abuse, we did specifically ask about these eight methods, and our members told us if and which ones they're using. So check out that report. Mm-hmm. And Justin, didn't you just write a blog on this topic? Yeah, we actually have a few blog posts uh, that reference opioid abuse uh, specifically. Uh, So just go to blog.ifebp.org and search opioid to read up on how employers and plan sponsors can combat this issue. Plus, you'll find a link to that recently mentioned foundation survey on mental health in the workplace. So please check those out. Well, I think that wraps it up for us. It's the bottom of the ninth. Final out's been recorded, and I'm officially out of bad baseball puns. (laughs) So I wanted to thank Julie and thank Kelly, and thank you all for listening to Talking Benefits. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Take me out to the ballgame, courtesy Kevin McLeod Music, 